So I guess you have, um, like with with your business, then you you have very good relationship with all of them. Can really easily pick up the phone and say, "Hey, uh, I mean, you probably don't get knows uh, <laughs> via email anyway, or something like this, because you 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 are very closely working with those people on on deals." I guess. What would what do you think is? It was very interesting what you said when it comes to um, to have a certain specific like an approach or um you know you mentioned for instance sales process um there is sales methodologies out there the, you mentioned crm and so on where would you start where would you advise a startup where should they start with all of this what is the most important thing um to start with when you want to have a very Welcome everyone to the next episode of the B2B Startup Sales Podcast. Um, today, I'm really grateful and happy to welcome Andrea Schlappach. Andrea, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thanks for, for joining the, the, the episode. Thank you as well. You have a very, very interesting uh, CV, I think. So you are now your com chief commercial officer of uh, Dataland AI, the actually very successful startups or fast fast growing startups in Switzerland, but you had a very different start other than that that what we see um, otherwise. But you actually did um, um, a master or a university degree at ETH in Zurich in physics and, and chemistry, and somehow turned to sales. Basically, you have been working at very large corporates in Switzerland, like the Stock Exchange 6, um, Swiss Re, one of the biggest um, uh, reinsurance companies, um, founded your own company, uh, Safe Mine, and got through a few other ways to, to your role today. Um, Andrea, you may maybe would be interesting to hear how, how, how did that happen? How did you turn from basically a scientist i'd say or or physicist physicist or whatever you want to call to to sales how how did that go i come from a rather academical um uh, family um but um uh, shortly after i i finished my studies um uh, that was kind of um, not not the right fit so I went to the stock exchange uh, itself, so not working as a uh, as a broker. Um, I always loved the the intensity of the the real world, of the needs of the real world, um, and of the, the the market traction, proving that ideas are actually uh, not just rewarded by scientists, but um, rewarded by some form of revenues, income, and. Uh, I think that 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 has been one of the the leading um, attraction in my professional life so far. Uh, I I founded two companies in 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 succession, and in in the first one I quickly developed in, into a kind of a business product evangelist role, uh, doing um, business um, developments towards a community which I largely knew. So in the in the second um, startup, I, I rather went to the um, CEO CFO um, role, 
um, ultimately uh, organizing the whole um, merchant acquisition exit phase for all our founders. And since then, I've been um, involved in several mostly Swiss startups in various roles. And what I, I see there is while most of the ideas kick off in a purely technical concept with people which have a very technical background, most of the challenges ultimately lie in convincing the market um, to, to hand over their money into your pocket. So um, I think with getting older, more mature myself, uh, the those commercial challenges um, are, let's say, of more interest for me than, than the pure technical side. Maybe also because on the technical side, uh, I'm no longer I'm personally on the leading edge. Yeah. So you have been advising a few startups as well, Andrea, right? Like, uh, as you just said, mostly technical people, because I think that's where you you have also a, quite a lot of credibility <laughs> with your with your scientific background at first things that you give those people on their way when it comes to to selling i think the most important part is that they need to uh, understand their possible customers or at least their markets very very well they need to listen to the markets they need to have contacts they need to talk to them they need to show that they're willing to learn and eventually to be regarded as a, as a peer. Um, because most of the initial ideas are not very suitable, um, at least as seen from the market, especially um, where, as most of the products uh, only offer an inc incremental uh, benefit over um, today's situation. And um, in there, it's, it's really about... Um, being part of the market, being taken seriously. And I think often young people with a, with an engineering technical background are um, perceived as being reasonably arrogant about uh, what, what the product needs and not willing to listen. So I think listening, learning, improving, adapting, iterating, um, I think that's, that's the way to go. Is that something that came to you? It came naturally with your first experiences because you have also such a background, basically. Is that something that you really felt comfortable with, um, not just um, conceptually build something, but also uh, get out, iterate, talk to, to potential customers? Well, it's a process you're in. Uh, the first startup um, uh, I created with two friends um, in the aviation community, uh, I was kind of, and my two friends were complete uh, representative of the customers themselves. So we had a, a very close uh, understanding of the market. Um, and I think a lot of startups can operate in such a domain um, if you build a software for a lot for a large market on for for banking for fitness for whatever you might be part of the market yourself however when you're um, building up a niche especially in the b2b uh, domain you are very seldom 
um, a true uh, specialist of that market. So you need to learn. And in our case there, it was about the open pit mining markets. I mean, um, how, are, how, how are those big trucks operated? Uh, what are the troubles for, for, for the drivers, the truck drivers? Uh, what, what problems happen on the mine? Um, you learn things about, um, I know, part of your users being um, uh, illiterate. Um, you, you understand what union pressure uh, means and how that must be embedded somehow in, in a product. So um, what I learned is that even the boring markets, I mean, the markets that look extremely boring are extremely interesting. Um, in, in, in all details. So um, I once worked for in a, in a consulting project for what now is uh, Lafarge Holzim. And I mean, from an outside point of view, that's a completely boring market. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a highly specialized market and all markets are highly specialized and ha have a history, how it developed to that. And in all sales roles and the main sale role in all startups is done by the founders, by the CEOs, um, and not by dedicated salespeople initially. Um, you need to understand how the market operates to fine tune your product idea into something that ultimately uh, serves the purpose um, for, for whatever issues, problems the, the customers um, either really have or perceived to have or could have or changes in regulation yeah so i think you you what you're saying also is it's very important for people in those complex um, and highly specialized kind of environments that salespeople are experts in in what they do um, so does that mean that, like, when when you would hire salespeople in in your area, like, I, I mean, uh, aerospace is, or aviation is one of these, I think, very very difficult and complicated uh, fields, and you probably need people who are very knowledgeable in that in that area. Um, does that mean you basically always, or you need specialist people um, who want to do sales? Well, ultimately, a sales role is a bridging role between people because on the other uh, on the other sides, I mean, companies are virtual things. At the end of the day, you 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 talk to people. People need to make decisions. Uh, people risk their reputation, their jobs, uh, um, if they advocate to engage into your product, your service. So it's bridge building, it's confident building activity between people. But yes, it, it can dramatically help if you're technically savvy enough to understand on one side um, uh, how the customer ticks and all his problems, which always have some, some level of technical involvement. And on the other side, that you have a hands-on understanding of your own product, which also includes some, some level of technical part. But then you need ultimately to translate that um, to bridge to bridge the the real specialists together if if and where needed. Mm -hmm. So so um, I would say a lot of very successful salespeople have a technical background, but in most cases they're only successful if they have a fair bit portion of um, 
of of uh, comforting people, um, building building relationships, um, getting trust because trust in organizations typically starts with trust in people. How do you think what helps what helps the most? What is what are the critical factors to gain the trust? Sharing reasonably similar values, but in an implicit manner, not not explicit. So you don't need to advertise that uh, we share the same values like you. But uh, they need to. You, your customers need to realize, to feel, to hear, by all means, in a consistent manner, what to tell them. Um, uh, you need to be credible. Uh, I mean, a, a customer must not always hear that everything's perfect. So they also expect full honesty where things don't match, where problems are ahead. So um, ultimately, the, the relationship between companies is not fundamentally different from the relationship from people. So it's about values. It's about trust it's about consistency um and then i mean that's the base layer and on top of that uh, the comes the functional the functional layer so um i need to i need to be better than others i need to be cheaper than others i need to be more reliable i need to help um the customer solve a problem he has either with his himself or with his customers um so that he's willing to pay I mean, it's not just about the relationship. I also need to provide some some benefits. Yeah, but I think working for startups, the benefits are usually pretty big. At least the hypothetical one. The question is whether you can translate that in a in a benefit that that is long lasted, long lasting. That um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as the sales uh, leader, you are in the best position to translate that into a, a long-term benefit. <laughs> yeah, know. I mean that's your job. I mean, whether you're successful, that's a different story. But 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 yeah. this is your job, and yeah. if you if, if you can't manage that, I think you're 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 in the wrong position. Yeah. Um, how would you like? I think also when you're when you're a technical founder you probably have also a lot of problems to how to approach people like how do you even start a discussion how do you do that now or how do you how what would you advise when it comes to that well we are working in a fairly small industry mm -hmm. with uh, let's say a triple digit number of, of, of parties so it's not too difficult to know whom you could talk to um, the players most of the players have been around for quite some long time in there the, 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 the challenge in very large organization often is whom to approach um, and uh, whether there is some form of a, a communication inside the, the, the company so I mean, large, large companies like, uh, it's not among my kinds, but but like an IBM or a Microsoft, I mean, with maybe hundreds of thousands of employees, um, you may be talking to 17 different people and they more or less know each, nothing of each other. They might not even know the names. And that can be very, very uh, time-consuming, partially frustrating. It might also mean you need to even have um, non-disclosure agreements with several sections of the company. 
and all decisions take take uh, very long. But I mean, there is no golden golden solution to to that problem. Just start where you can start, and um, maybe you know you know people in in something. You know old industry experts who can give you some some hints. You you can attend events, trade shows where some some key people speak, talk to them. Um, this usually is easier when events happen physically. Um, people tend to be, um, let's say, not very willing to respond to emails often. Um, give them a call if you can. Um, yeah, I mean, try and start somewhere and then eat you through. I mean, like a virus in an organization, eat you through until you reach those who, I would say, they're often too two parties which are relevant. Uh, on one side, you have the more engineering people who ultimately judge whether your thing is suitable. And then you have more um, commercial management people who have the ultimate say about the budget. And you need to identify those two groups, which sometimes have a huge overlap, sometimes not at all. And you need to convince both. And then on top of that, especially talking with big Big companies have all the, the the formalities of procurement, so you can't just invoice something, but you first need to have contracts and supplier forms and uh, get an SAP entry and all that. And then on the other side is the budget. So um, the budget itself um, often creates funny behavior of companies, and you need to you need to learn how that works. How is that? That's really interesting because, as you said, like 30 or very, very few companies that you can actually work with uh, in the end. What is if two or three just say, can you ever accept the no? Or is it just like you try another ankle into, into the company or try to, to, to change the discussion? Or, um, I mean, how is that if, if the biggest two say, mm, no, we don't want to work with you? Uh, is that does that mean it's 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 basically over or how do you see that risk? A no is never a no, so keep on keep on working. Maybe there is some 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 idling periods of I know half year year. Uh, you need to manage a little bit uh, how how you work. So keep keep some form of an overview. Call it the customer management system, whether it's Salesforce or an Excel sheet or however you are or your organization internally is, but. You need to know what you did. You need to do that in a reasonably systematic way. And ultimately, also your investor will ask about uh, how the sales process works on one side conceptually, but on the other side, um, um, what are the tools um, on the processes you use? What is the sales funnel? How many? What is the overall efficiency? And I mean, the more the more you are in a in a subscription uh, or as a service model the more people will ask um, about very, very simple, um, well-defined KPIs, um, how, you, how you translate one stage of something into another stage of something, um, kind of from, from a rough interest into a very specific interest, um, or how you convert um, a marketing dollar into a, an earned dollar. Um, so you need to do that in a systematic way. Um, you will hear very often a no. 
even more often you will hear a yeah well not yet but we'll looking at it and call me back later or you don't even get the reaction and in most cases it's not a i mean it's not a reaction from a company it's a reaction from an individual who for whatever reason currently do not does not see a fit and i mean try to understand why i mean that starts with asking or maybe do some background um forensics but I mean, the situation of individuals, the situation of companies continuously changes. So whatever no is applicable today might be a yes in a week. Yeah. So don't give up. And I mean, the smaller the market is, the 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 the, the smaller the space for, for alternatives. So ultimately, you need to come back. But yeah. Efficient sales process. I mean... Having an efficient sales process requires that the product already is reasonably stable and reasonably well adapted to the market. So the question is about scaling. The question is no longer about uh, trial and error, product market fit optimization, and all the pivots that are very frequent in the early in the early days of startup. So I assume this is given. Mm-hmm. Um, then, I mean, build up something systematic and build up sales tools for, for, for an increasingly, for a growing sales team in order to ensure that all deliver the same message, that all um, provide the same records in whatever um, customer um interaction tracking tool or even salesforce or crm um that you get appropriate feedback of what do customers want what do they um dislike about your product and and and, and part of the of the, of the tools is of course i mean whatever flyers presentations short videos things which allow the individual people of the organization to work faster more efficient with a more consistent message i mean this this is what ultimately matters Mm -hmm. yeah and this also means that to the extent your kind of product of service offering allows try to build as much customer interaction into your product so that you never lose the contact with the customer, that you continue to see the problems he faces, the customer he he faces, that you have an incredibly big data warehouse and that you can somehow monetize towards new products or other customers. So um, if you can do that, do it. But I mean, some some products don't allow that. And what would you say, Andrea, before um, even, I mean, it's interesting what you say. So that's when you have product market fit. What can you, can you pro, like systematically do before you have product market fit? So a lot of our uh, customers don't, or a lot of our startups that we, that we advise don't have product market fit yet. Are there things that they can do um, before that too? Okay, I would say there are two two completely different categories of startups. One 
category starts with a clear customer need. Mm -hmm. So there is a customer. I mean, regardless of how you know the customer, but there is a yep. specific customer who clearly says you, um, I have a need in blah, 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 whatever. Um, and the other much more common, especially with technical universities, is there is a solution in search of a, of a problem. And in this case, even more, try to identify possible representatives of, um, of customers, could be customers, and talk to them and maybe offer them early access, cheaper, free access, but get as much feedback as you can in order to change your service offering, your product a little bit or massively or even do a complete pivot um, mm -hmm. so that what you offer actually, I mean, sees a demand. And that's very often not the case. Um, not because it's not theoretically helpful, because it's the wrong time, because uh, it, it somehow comes with the wrong incentives, because regulation does not yet allow it, or because there is a fundamental contradiction between the interest of those people buying it and those people using it. And I think yeah, you just need to understand the environment of, of your possible customers and Talk to them, observe, learn, iterate, adapt. I mean, in a wider sense, that's market research. Yeah. But it's not a it's not a desk market research by Googling, but it's really a, an interaction with the user in finding out what's what's good, what's wrong. It's I mean, the question is how fast can evolution be? And if you if you if you leave nature in doing the evolution in the trial and error Darwinistic manner. I mean, the result is brilliant, but it might take, take a billion years. And as a startup, you typically lack the funds to, to run for even a few years. So you somehow need to attract people, either it's investors or, 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 or customers. And the usual thing is that you start with uh, attracting investors just based on more or less an idea. Um, and then you gradually need to show the investors that it's not just an idea, but there is some form of market traction, maybe initially not, not in the form of cash, cash flow, but in the form of partnerships, um, ledger of intents, um, free trials, PR, um, but then, I mean, eventually you need to get traction, market traction by, by getting real money, ultimately, I mean, paying for your burn rate and exceeding the burn rate so that there is money to, money to spend, for example, back to the investors. Yeah. So these are those uh, who start with a, with a solution, basically, and you said uh, the most most startups that you have seen are in that space, um, from emerging from universities and, then, and looking for the problem, and then you have the others who start. But then, but then, I mean, is part of the product market fit fine tuning is not just about how to change your product, 
but it's how to embed your product into adjacent offerings. So I'm uh, I'm pretty heavy in the in the in the drone industry. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of companies that started with a drone. I mean, a hardware with some propellers able to fly. Mm-hmm. And they always thought, well, customers want to buy a drone. I mean, a piece of hardware similar to what you buy from DJI. But in a, in, in a professional context, um, I mean, the, the unlocking key to real business was in making the drones useful because very few of the customers are truly looking into piloting an aircraft and bothering about how to mount a propeller or so or how to program a route. They have a complete different problem. I mean, they want to. I mean, they're uh, they want to do some ex- inspection, so they don't want to bother with flying an aircraft. And maybe you need to have um, the 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 image the image management solution around. So, I, and very often these things. Um, provide a much higher value for the customers and therefore also um, provide a much higher um, pricing capability in in your product offering so you need to you need to really not only sell a car but you also need to ensure there is the ecosystem that makes the product attractive Mm -hmm. yeah interesting two last quick questions uh, Andrea what's your number one source uh, when it comes to improving sales skills, talking to interesting people, uh, where you see they have uh, skills, uh, experience uh, that are beyond what you're capable of doing, and also, I mean, getting um, honest feedback from people, even um, where you do not expect it. I mean, it sometimes hurts, but uh, be open and listen and learn. I mean, ultimately, you're also you're always a salesman of yourself. Yeah. And how do you? What do you think? How do you think B two B sales is going to develop the next decade? B two B sales. Yeah. Is there in some gen- in a general you... manner, or or yeah. in what in sense? General. Yeah. Are there any big changes you'd expect from like uh, technology that emerges or um, that it's not needed anymore or any? <laughs> that B2B is not needed? I mean, there is a natural, <laughs> I mean, economies of scales is one of the very strong um, things in in the world. So there will always be very big players, um, big, big in the sense of Google, Apple, or, or, or big in a small niche. And uh, I mean, for startups, working with B2B is extremely attractive mm-hmm. because um, I mean, once I did, it might be pretty tough to get in, but once you're in, the relationships are usually pretty strong and the, the potential to cross-sale and upsell um, often is there if you provide a good service they will ask you because one of the natural tendencies of big companies in a b2b constellation is to have as few partners as possible because it's it's pain in the ass to manage partners so 
if they have a trusted partner, they try to get more and more from the same party. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So working, working with, working in a B2B market, I mean, bears, of course, all the cluster risk problems because you end up with having only two or five customers, which are, or very few, which produce 80% of your, of your income. But it's also a very comfortable situation. You also get often get very very direct feedback. So, so it's I going think to be you know, in, in general, working in the B two B market is an easier an easier um, beginning for for startups than B two C. But I mean, I mean, there are a lot of exceptions to that. Yeah. So salespeople in B two B are going to be needed also. Uh, in the future, it's it's not going to change much the the sales role in B two B. I mean, it's a little bit too generic. To, I mean, B two B. I mean, yeah, you yeah. can't make these these kind of generic statements. But but human will always be involved, and in a B two B process, I mean, the, the the money at stake is much bigger for an for for each transaction. So, um, it's much. Yeah more likely that at the end of the humans we look at than rather than machines yeah yeah no i agree with you i mean b2b and, and interestingly you are on the like other scale that i usually say you have like a very very few potential customers but then there are these companies who sell hundred dollar tickets for a year to like millions of customers and uh, and that's a very very different space from where you are um yeah, Andrea, thank you very much for joining the episode. It was a great pleasure to have you here today.